This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome to the Joan Hamburg Show. And you know we do this every Sunday starting at 2 o'clock. And we've got a really good lineup. I say that every Sunday, but it's true. We've got the President of the United States' sister, Valerie Biden. You know, a lot of people don't realize that she has been his campaign manager since he was in his 20s and started running for office. So you're going to enjoy meeting Valerie Biden. And who's a greater performer, composer, singer than Sheryl Crow? Well, guess what? She's coming over, too. So enjoy the Joan Hamburg Show straight ahead. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats. Last week, we decided that being in the city on a Saturday, and it was a pretty day, we would go over to the High Line and walk the High Line and then have a very late lunch so that we didn't have to fuss with a crowded dinner on Saturday night. So we decided we would try a very hot Greek restaurant called Avra. And there are two of them. We decided we would try the Avra on Madison at 14 East 60th Street. So first, we went over to the High Line, which has a lot of entrances. If you're going to the Whitney downtown, that can be part of your Whitney visit. You do the museum. You can do a little shopping in the neighborhood, which is always fun. And then you can go over and walk the High Line. And right underneath it are restaurants and bars and all kinds of things. So it was very crowded, really crowded. But we chose 30th Street off 10th Avenue because there's an elevator to get up. And there's a lot of stairs. So we did that. And then after the High Line, which we enjoyed. We sat in the sun, we walked, we enjoyed all the people. We made a 2.30 reservation at Avra. And this restaurant has a really good outside. And since we had been plagued with COVID, friends, family, my daughter who had been so careful, I can't even tell you, she wouldn't even let anyone in our house for a long period of time. And then, of course, she took her mask off recently uh, for a couple of things, and she got COVID. Anyway, so we decided goodbye to eating inside for the moment, and Avra had a really good outside. So we made this late reservation, and you were in your own little area outside. It was like one of these plastic rooms, but it had openings so that you got air in. It was lovely. 
there were flowers. It was not like some made-up thing. It was very, very attractive. And seven days a week, from noon till 4.30, this very expensive restaurant has a three-course prefixed lunch at $31.50. And I'm telling you guys, the menu, and it's really good food, the first course, you get three, was a choice of Spanakopita, delicious. That's baked phyllo with fresh spinach and feta and leeks or meatballs, Greek meatballs or calamari or silvaki, the spreads. I mean, really delicious things that we liked. And then they had more. They had salmon tartare. And then comes the main course. They even had bronzini as part of this deal, or chicken frites, or fish of the day, swordfish, Mediterranean salad, grilled salmon. If you wanted lamb chops or lobster, a little bit more. And then, and it was delicious. And we sat there, I'm embarrassed to tell you, we were there till almost five o'clock. And then desserts, a wonderful baklava, fruit, chocolate yogurt, cheesecake, or um, a chocolate bar with rosemary sauce that was out of the cheesecake. And we had such a good time. And then we realized they were trying to set the table up for dinner. So that was that. And we left. But that's a really nice thing to know about, that you can eat. And I've been to this restaurant many times, but truthfully, it's so noisy at night and so crowded that this was like the best surprise. It was quiet. You could appreciate the food. And it was busy. I mean, every place was taken. So you definitely need a reservation. 212-937-0100. Avra on Madison, 14 East 60th Street. And that would be, if you could get it, a nice Mother's Day thought. And then I have to tell you that I went to see, I've been catching up on theater because we had a little COVID in the family. We've missed a few shows, which I'm going to make up in the next few weeks. But we watched, we went to see Mr. Saturday Night with Billy Crystal. And I have to tell you, I'm, it's like when someone says, we had such a great time at dinner, but the meat wasn't the best quality, the fish, whatever. I don't, I'm not going to nitpick at all. I got the biggest kick out of Mr. Saturday Night, and you may have seen it. You may be like me, a big Billy Crystal fan. This is not a night with Billy Crystal. It's, it's a regular Broadway show about Mr. Saturday Night, about a comedian who's now 70 years old or about that, and he's lost himself. And an opportunity just may come up. But first he has to figure out who he is and why he is. There were so many laughs. I love shtick when it's done well. And no one does it better than this guy. No one does it better than Billy Crystal. 
It's at the Nederlander Theater. And I'm telling you that you're going to love it. And thank me for it. It was very crowded, as it should be. And I also liked Funny Girl. I'm not going to go to Funny Girl and say, oh, I saw it with Barbara Streisand and you can't compare. You cannot compare. There's only one Barbara Streisand and that was a different Funny Girl. So you're going to see its own Funny Girl. The audience loved it. And I think you are really going to enjoy it too. It's got a great cast. It's very different from the Funny Girl you may have seen in the past. But it's an amazing story. And it's something that's going to make you feel good. And that's the joy of theater. So a couple of thoughts on Joan Eats and Joan Goes to Theater. Stay tuned. We have a lot more show coming up. And you are going to enjoy every minute of it. Don't move. More straight ahead. First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. And I must say, I enjoyed reading Valerie Biden-Owen's new book, Growing Up Biden. And Valerie is, of course, the sister of the President of the United States. In fact, Valerie Owens, Valerie Biden-Owens, is the first woman in this country, to the best of my knowledge, to have run a presidential campaign when she ran Joseph Biden's campaign. And she also was the campaign manager through seven Senate races. And she's been doing this since they were really kids. So congratulations to you. And are Thank you having you, a good time, Thank Valerie, now that yes. the book is done? <laughs> yes. Uh, it was like uh, somebody asked me what it felt like writing the book, and I said, it, uh, I imagine it was like giving birth to an elephant. Um, it was <laughs> many, many of the stories, actually most of the stories, I had already written because I'm a storyteller, and you know, some people write music or sing songs, and I sit down and write these little vignettes. So the hard part was putting it all together um, that it flowed and it, it made sense because I'd, write, I'd look at one of my stories and I'd say, like, who, who cares? You know, why, why would I put that in? So it was mm -hmm. hard choosing which one, but uh, I wrote it because, you know, I think that um, there's I, – I, it was a tribute to the magic of family. And my three brothers and I uh, grew up in – mid 20th century, middle class, ordinary family. And uh, what, I, what I've come to realize is that the thread of the, of the, that make up the fabric of, of uh, a family run through m most of the families that I know. And those threads are you know, commitment and loyalty and love. And then there's heartbreak and disappointment and loss. Right. And, you know, we all have it. We're, uh, we have a lot more in common um, than not. And I think at this stage and in our, where we are right now, we need to remember all the common good uh, 
threads and bonds that we have with each other, with one another. So right, I wrote it about the magic and, of family. And I, I really appreciate that. And my family was like that, a big, noisy, loving family where everyone came together. But not we every family. Yeah, a brother, but my grandfather lived with us, and he had a bunch of kids. And they all lived, we all lived in the same town. And they were, there wasn't a night that everyone didn't come over, all of them, for dinner or to yeah. visit grandpa. So I never even knew who was the real brother or the real They were all there, always. Yeah. To this yeah. day. I know it, I know it to be. Yeah. It's it's but, a it's a gift, you know. It really it really is a gift. But I I want but, to tell you, Joan, it's not it's not been easy raising an older brother. I'm going right to heaven. <laughs> no, that's for sure. And it's unusual because usually the older brother and the younger sister fight and or argue, and yet there was something about you and your big brother that escaped most of that stuff. And instead, loyalty crept in very early. Yeah, he he was um, he was so good to me and so so kind. Uh, when I was a little girl, I mean, the, from the, the, my earliest memories are his putting out his hand and said, "Come on, Val, we've got things to do and places to go and people to see." And you know, I hopped on the back fender or the handlebars of his bike, and you know, we went off and. His friends would say, why did you bring a girl? And he said, she's not a girl. She's my sister. So he, 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 was, uh, he right. told me, honest to God, that anything that he could do, he said, you can do a better Val. And I, it wasn't possible. He was three years older and stronger and bigger and, and better at everything than I was. But he said, uh-uh. He, he told me I could do anything that he could do, and I could do it better. And... I felt like I, I owed it to him and and to myself, you know, to try to be, grow up to be that little girl that he thought could do anything better. So my little legs ran alongside trying to keep up with him, but he, <laughs> he was he was good. He was good. Right, and even though the whole family had a unique bond, was it Big Brother Joe that? had a huge ambition for something beyond what one might consider the norm? Uh, yeah, Joe was, um, he was always a, a leader and not the kid who pounded his chest and said, come follow me, but people gravitated to, all the kids gravitated towards them in, in our neighborhood. And I'll tell you why I think, uh, Joan, um, when he was a little boy, he had a terrible stutter. He couldn't string more than three words together at a time. And you know, he appreciates and knows what it's like to be bullied or to be made mm -hmm. fun of or to be shut down. Right. And, and kids when you've been bullied, yeah, and adults too, um, not all, but some. Because when you stutter, people, the assumption was that you were stupid and my mom would say to him no honey you stutter because you're so smart you can't get the words out fast enough you, that that and she gave him confidence so what my brother developed uh is you, if you've been bullied I, I believe you grow up and you become a bully yourself 
or else you develop something called empathy, which is a fancy word for being able to feel, not as in touching a fabric, but to absorb other people's emotions and other people's feelings. And and that was the leader that Joe became. Uh, he he treated my and my mom and dad told me we had to treat everybody with dignity. Mom would say, "You are no better than anybody else, and nobody else is better than you." And that's how uh, that's how we we operated. And and Joe just rose to the top. I mean, he people people came to him and uh, kids and appreciated his his strength and his character. And that's what the biggest thing in a leader is, is character. Right. And he was a lawyer. And then the first campaign, was that first campaign for the, for the um, Newcastle County Council? Yeah. Was that the it's first one? And you, right. But you were, yeah. what, 26 yourself? You were a kid. Yeah. Many ways. Yeah. yeah. So I was. Tell the <laughs> audience. Valerie, and by the way, I'm talking to Valerie Biden-Owens, growing up Biden, uh, President Joe Biden's youngest sister, how you, a teacher, how you became involved in that. In fact, the entire family got involved in yeah. that campaign. Well, um, the reason, Joan, is because uh, we had no alternative. We had no money, no influence, no name recognition, and no structured Democratic Party in Delaware at the time, in 1970 when we ran for county council. And um, Joe decided he was going to run, and he looked at me and he said, um, so will you be my campaign manager? And I said, sure. The, the reason is that we didn't know what we didn't know. You know, so, you know, campaigns, it's people to people. We went out, we knocked on doors, we listened to people, we heard what they wanted and told them about, it's all about values. And um, we won that first campaign. Again, I didn't, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to be able to run a campaign. And he, he didn't know that he was too young and he, that he wasn't supposed to be a county councilman. So we just did it. And, did it. Um, yeah, we just jumped in and we were uh i say we were bold not brash and we were confident but not cocky and that's that's a big difference we we worked on a one-to-one -one basis to to let people know that we were paying attention to them because that's what the campaign's about they don't care who their council is they care about the council person and their senator paying attention to them exactly. they're the important and, and and then you learned on the job, and he constantly looked to you for whatever race he was involved in. Yeah, in 1972, that when we ran for when he ran for the United States Senate, he was 29. He was too young to be elected. He had he had to wait for his birthday on November 20th. But 72 really there was a, was a great time because it was it was a combustible relationship between youth and the issues. And we ran, we had youth, passion, uh, uh, commitment, the best candidate. And we ran on the issue of stopping the war in Vietnam, pursuing civil rights, and protecting, protecting planet Earth. We were one of the first campaigns to even talk about the environment. So the time was ripe for this um, uh, this energy of youth and issues. It all merged, and uh, 
we won that election by 3,163 votes. Um, in it was mm-hmm. a Nixon McGovern landslide year. Everybody overwhelmingly supported Nixon in the state of Delaware, but they they crossed over to elect Joe. It was really it was great. The press called us the Children's Crusade. I was a teacher at high school, and Amelia, Joe's late wife, was a teacher in grade school, and all those kids jumped in and uh, became the Biden post office. You know, delivered our mail because we didn't, we couldn't afford stamps, and uh, it was it was an exhilarating time. You know, again, we yeah. didn't know any better. We just we just jumped did in it. and did it. And what a lot of people didn't realize is after the terrible tragedy, when uh, President Biden lost his wife and daughter, you and your husband moved in with them. And yeah. took care of his surviving family. Well, Joan, that is tr- that's true. Uh, Joe was elected on November seventh, uh, nineteen seventy-two, and on December eighteenth, nineteen seventy-two, six weeks later, uh, a tractor trailer hit Nelia's station wagon with the three children in it, and killed Nelia and their baby daughter Naomi um, instantly. And the boys who were two and three were seriously injured. And my brother said, uh, look, the Delaware can get another senator, but the boys can't get another father. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to, he asked my brother Jimmy to call the governor and say, you know, he, that he wasn't going to serve because we had to take care of the boys. And I said to Joe, look, I'll, I'll come in. You got to try it. You know, the same issues uh, that you, you ran on in on November 7th are as important on December 19th as they were on November 7th. And Neil, you worked too hard uh, to get to get you there. So just try it. And I said, I'll move in and stay until it's time to go. And uh, it, that was it. But my brothers, Joan, if it wasn't heroic, my three brothers would have done any one of them would have the done right. the same for me had it been flipped. Yeah, and yeah. your parents, uh, I read in Growing Up Biden, they moved out of their house and gave Joe their house, and they took his house because he needed it in order to run in that district. Yeah, but yeah. It was, <laughs> then my parents had a good sense of humor, Joan. <laughs> I bet. They had to have, but... All this, Valerie, running all these campaigns, and really the the woman behind the man in many ways, and you work so hard and did this all the time. Was it painful to be in the shadow, or this was what you did? No, I, I never. Uh, there's, I, I never felt in the shadow. There's a great quote by Edith Wharton and. Um, she said there are two ways to spread the light. One is to be the candle and the other the mirror that reflects it. And Joe and I switched back and forth. Uh, sometimes he was the candle and sometimes he was the mirror, vice versa. And I, I did, I, I was his campaign manager. Um, it is the role of any good campaign manager or media consultant not to be the front page story. It's about the candidate and the voters. So I was always content uh, 
and doing and doing. Uh, somebody I just came in the the room here. I was always content of of of. I, I thought I had the best of both worlds. I could be involved in policy and the and the politics of the campaign, and then I could go back and have my children raise my family uh and uh and then you know five years later go back into a, another campaign right. for the year so I, I i had the best of both worlds i was i was fortunate is I, it true valerie you didn't want joe to run in 2020 i don't know how you I dealt was, with it. yeah yeah um uh, in 2020 I, I talk about it you're right in the book uh it was the one race that I was not enthusiastic about uh, because I believed, and my expectations have proven to be true, that the former president would do anything to um, go after, to destroy my brother uh, and my family. And I thought, why, Joe? You've served, you know, why don't you just let it go? Because, uh, this this man is um, is not a good person. I thought, and um, my brother said it, it was Charlottesville. He was not going to run for president, but Charlottesville happened, and, and the neo Nazis, you know, marching with the torches mm-hmm. and chanting the slogans of the 1930s. Joe said he couldn't. He said, Val, I can't look in the mirror at myself if I don't. If I don't do this, Joe knows, as I said, he, he, he knows a bully when he sees one. And he said, he can't, he said, I can't turn away because I'm afraid. I'm not going to be, I'm not afraid of this man. And I'm going to, because Joe thought that he had, um, he had a message, you know, to restore the soul of America, rebuild the middle class and unite America. And he, uh, so he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going for it. I want to do it, and I said, "Okay, then, I'm I'm in. Let's go. And I'm in all the way. Yeah, yeah." And when We're he says the, now that he wants, he's going to run again. How yeah, does I, that do, make I hope you feel. Well, it makes you know, uh, Joan. I believe that he is the right man at the right time for all the right reasons. I wouldn't want anybody else in the Oval Office dealing with not only restoring the soul of America, but restoring America in the world. I mean, look what he's done with NATO and bringing, you know, all the leaders of the world together. Uh, so he's, he's, uh, he's a good man. And I don't have to make him anything other than what he is. Well, he is. I mean, he's a good man and, and I, you know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't walk on water. He's Joe Biden. And he, uh, you see what you get. There's no distinction between. There's very little daylight between the public man and the private uh, person. He's Joe Biden. So, despite presidencies, you don't see huge personality changes. Oh no! I mean, Joe is. Uh, <laughs> I think I don't think that. Uh, who was it? it? Was John Meacham said uh, a couple weeks ago? He described my brother as an inverted uh iceberg he said icebergs usually are you know the the big the the depths are below the water you don't you know there's so much more below the water that you don't see and he said with your brother joe biden 
you see it all. There's very little that we don't that we don't understand. What uh, you know, we like it or it's not whether we like it or not. But he's 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 a pretty open, pretty much an open book. And by the way, Valerie is going to be in conversation with John Meacham at the 92nd Street Y, May 8th, a week um, from Sunday. I want you to Joan, you are terrific. That. You are <laughs> you are a pro. Thank you. No, no, but he's great, and you're great, and it should really, and the Y is one of the big centers here in yeah. New York City. So yeah. if Brother Joe decides to make another run for it, are you up for it? Sure, uh, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sticking, I'm sticking with Joe uh, all along, and I, and I think he's, uh, as I said, I, I can't, ima- I, I, I can't imagine somebody else sitting in that, that Oval Office right now. So yes, I'm, I'm with him all the way. And you've never worked for anyone else, and I'm sure people have approached you because of the success. Well, I I didn't work as a campaign manager, but I was a media consultant with uh, a man named Joe Slade White, who just recently died a couple of years ago. And I mm-hmm. did uh, I hired Joe Slade White to do our radio and TV ads in nineteen for our nineteen ninety six election campaign. And after it was over, this Slade White said to me, uh, "Would you work? Come and work with me?" And I said, "Why? No, I, I don't." I don't want to work. <laughs> I only work for Joe. And uh, he said, well, you get, if you hear the noise, there's a big helicopter outside. And that's that loud, loud noise. But he said, I want you to be my campaign manager, Slade White. He said, you, you, you made me produce my best work. So will you, will you come and, and work with me? And, uh, and I did do that until right before he died. So Slade White continued to do our radio and TV ads. So it was a good right. relationship. Well, yep. you did a good job, Growing Up Biden, by Valerie Biden-Owens, and it's a memoir, and it's a story about a family, and a family holding together through everything, and how loyalty really plays a role. Congratulations. I look forward to talking to you again. Take care. Thank you, Joan. Thank you. I appreciate you. Bye. I'm Joan Hamburg. And you're listening to WABC, and there's lots more ahead, so stay tuned. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome everyone to the Joan Hamburg Show. And Cheryl Crow is visiting, and she's got something that I think, I don't really know Cheryl Crow, but it sounded surprising to me that this um, brilliant artist, a nine-time Grammy Award recipient with an incredible career, which is flourishing, like, why do a documentary now? But Cheryl, why? How come a documentary now? 
Oh, my gosh, Joan, I'll be honest with you. When they came to me at the beginning of quarantine, sorry, my dogs are now barking. That's okay. I've got to one, too. Oh, my gosh, they're so needy. Anyway, when they came to me, my manager came to me at the beginning of quarantine and said, look, you've got offers to do a documentary. This would be a great time to do it. And I said, absolutely not. Don't want to do it. And um, over a period of time, we discussed it more. And he's like, look, you have over 30 years of life experience, and it won't be all about the career. It's about the person. And I've, I've thought about how much documentaries have meant to me over the years, and they aren't all about people who've already died and gone on. So I decided, let's let's do it, but it's got to be on my terms. And hired a great documentarian or a great director, Amy Scott. And over the course of a year, we had tons of interviews and we wound up with what we have, and and I'm I'm really pleased with it. I really love the soundtrack, which has got new songs on it as well, and so hopefully people will like it, and they'll they'll see they'll see the journey of a person in my business as opposed to somebody famous who's reflecting on 30 years of fame. Right, and that's what I think is the gift. Like, who knows? We see. You, this incredible woman with a fabulous career, we see you as a mother, as a friend, as a daughter, a sister, all these things, but we don't really know about the struggle. You know, when people reach heights, it's easy to look in and say, well, no big deal. You know, look what she's done, and it was easy. They don't really realize the struggle that goes on, the sacrifices to get to where you got to. Yeah, and I think, you know, for obviously I'm from a different generation. There, there, there wasn't social media. There weren't big TV contests where you could become famous really quickly with a built-in fan base. You know, you started out as a scrapper, and I, I'm grateful for that because it gave me the opportunity to figure out who I was, and it gave me the opportunity to really hone my thing, but um, nothing back then really happened overnight. And um, just navigating that, navigating going from working really hard um, on on my craft and then all of a sudden becoming famous as a celebrity and the two not seeming to, like, um, gel, it, it it was not without its challenges. And it, it's, it was a great a great opportunity to talk about what it means to be a person and particularly a woman in um, in my business and still maintain some sense of self. Yeah, well, and even the beginning with your boldness of sort of pushing your way to an audition for a Michael Jackson, he was going on tour, but you sort of, I, I didn't know, maybe I knew that, read that a hundred years ago, but I let it go. And it was fascinating to read that because was he oh my Michael gosh, Jackson? Joan, I was when... so ballsy. I mean, honestly, <laughs> you know, I didn't. The, I just thought, okay, what what's the worst thing that can happen if I crash an audition? They can say, sorry, you can't come in. I mean, little things like that that I just thought, well, I've worked really hard. I'm a nice person, and I'm just going to show up. And things did tend to work in my favor in most instances. It's it's crazy. Um, but, you know, some of those things, I was already, by the time my first album came out, I was already 29. Um, it, I just felt like I got no time to lose here. I'm going to go for it. Right. 
And, and then you go through periods when you think even with your first album, nothing's happening. Why is nothing happening? Nothing's ever going to happen. And you're sort of alone at moments like that. Because even the consolation from a friend or a fellow musician isn't enough to pull you over at that time. Yeah, I mean, I think the real story is that um, you just have to keep walking towards um, the end goal. And I just wanted to be a great musician, and I wanted to be a great songwriter, like the people that I had admired. I mean, I loved and still love Stevie Nicks and the Rolling Stones and um, Stevie Wonder. I mean, all these people whose albums I, I own, James Taylor, um, uh, Tapestry, Carol King, helped me to figure out who, who I was as a kid. And they also kind of gave me a ticket out of my hometown. And um, I wanted that life. And it. I think you just keep keeping on. And that was the story for me of my career. I just kept kept at it, kept going, you know, kept just kept showing up. And that that can happen for anyone, but it's not going to be without its challenges, particularly as a woman. Right. And what, beside Carol King, were there a lot of other women? I was trying to recall what women, as you were coming of age, were there as role models. There weren't a lot. Well, I mean, there were a lot of women on the radio when I was coming up, like Pat Benatar and Chrissy Hine and, and women like that. But when I was very young, you know, Carol King, Bonnie Raitt, Stevie Nicks, uh, uh, Chrissy, um, you know, I had some pretty fierce role models, definitely, who seemed to be take no prisoners. And when I first saw Bonnie Raitt play, that's when I thought, well, um, there's no reason a woman can't front the band and still, you know, rock out on a guitar. And so there were lots of women that kind of gave me permission along the way to figure out who I was. And now here we are, we have a documentary, and I got to put I three knew. new songs on it, and Mick Jagger is playing on one of them, and, you know, it all kind of comes full circle. So I'm just curious. You have this coming out on May 6th. At this stage now, the kids are teens and growing up. Are you ready for another change, or is this a good place to hang out in for a while? Oh, man, I, I you know, I, I don't feel guilty in at all in saying I am – the last 10 years have been the happiest. The last 15 years have been the happiest years of my life. And I think when you have kids, it, it simplifies things fiercely. You know, it, it it puts everything in perspective. And all the decisions you make become easier because they are founded on what's best for my kids. And it's really made things easy. You know, I, I'm, I'm undergoing all the challenges of being in an ageist uh, industry. Um, but... Right. I love my life. I love, I love, and, and to be able to, we have a song that's out now called Forever, be able to put my kids in the doc, in the documentary and Did in they the love video. That? They, they've never been photographed. I've never, you know, advertised my that. kids. So we're sort of at a really sweet place. And the kids were probably thrilled with it. Do they love music? They love music. Um, my 14-year-old, who's about to be 15 next week, is, you know, he's a little more campy, a little more ham. My 11-year-old doesn't, he doesn't want to be on or in anything of mine. Um, he just wants a mom. He wants my, He wants his mom to be normal, drop him off at school, pick him up at school. You know, 
and and I'm great with that. I you know that's what I signed up for. But and you, it was interesting because that you wanted that all along, even with the big fame and the high points, you still wanted that life, whatever that life was. You wanted a piece of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I had a really beautiful upbringing and parents who, I mean, they're still married 66 years and still going strong. And you think that's what your life's going to look like. But then you can't um, you, you can't negate the fact that you don't have that life. Your life took you to Tokyo and it took you to Russia, for crying out loud. And, mm-hmm. right. you know, sometimes it's not going to look exactly the same, but sometimes it's going to be amazing. And that's... Um, and then that's my story. And the story, unbelievable. I loved hearing all about the Tuesday Night Music Club and all these things that happened to you along this journey that you recognized and took part in and got over the bad and kept on going. And that's a gift, too. Yeah, you know, um, I can safely say that nobody escapes challenges. You know, I, I know... Um, you know, I'm I'm a breast cancer survivor. Um, when you look at the statistic of, of how many women will have breast cancer, I'm in a very large community of outstanding yeah. women who have experienced the same thing I have, and, and it doesn't matter. You know, cancer doesn't care if you're famous or you're not famous. And um, mm-hmm. so there's a lot to my story that I think a lot of people will relate to. And this is a brand-new documentary called Cheryl, And that documentary, May 6th, I look forward to talking to you again. Congratulations and all good things to you and your family. Thank you, Joan. I appreciate it. Good to talk to you. We'll talk again. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. More ahead. Taking you behind the curtain, it's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Ramin Karimo is starring on Broadway now in one of the most awaited for revivals, the one and only Funny Girl at the August Wilson Theater. And he plays one of all of our favorite roles. He is the gorgeous gambler, the con man. Yet he's got a heart and a sensitive soul. He's the one and only Nicky Arnstein. And we're so happy you're back on Broadway and I'm sure you're getting a big kick out of it, too, although eight shows is a lot. I have to say it's great to be back, but it's one of the most fulfilling roles I've got to play. So although eight shows a week is, you know, quite the commitment for any role, it's it's a, it's a joy. I'm, I'm just having a blast every night and uh, really grateful to be part of it. Right. Well, I'm really glad. And it was interesting when I was reading all the background that before you got this role, Barbara Streisand was working, was she working in London? And she asked you to sing a duet with her, which was rather extraordinary anyway. And that's before all this started happening. That's correct. It was within like, it was just a a call out of the blue from our director, Richard J. And uh, he said, Barbara wants to sing with you. it was so surreal that it was, you couldn't even comprehend it. And there I was rehearsing with her, uh, with Barb and Lionel Richie was hanging out with us. I'm like, what is You're happening? Kidding. Right now? <laughs> and the That's stories right. they were telling, I, I remember thinking to myself, 
please don't look my way because I have no no antidote to add to, the, to your story about Otis Redding and the Temptations right now. Just let me listen. <laughs> and then within, I know. after singing with Barb in, in Hyde Park, it was probably within three to four weeks later, I get this offer for Nikki Arnstein. I was like, oh, that's what a... What, yeah, a, what a coincidence. coincidence. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you didn't even have to audition. I mean, even the biggest stars audition. But obviously, they were watching you, and this was it. Who knows? Um, you know, I'm never above auditioning, but <laughs> if there's a way of not doing it, great, because my nerves always get the better of me. So it worked out but perfect. Every and, um, actor. Yeah. I'm just glad hey. they had that faith in me to uh, hopefully be delivering the story of Nikki Arnstein every night in, in Funny Girl. And was Beanie Feldstein cast in it already when they uh, approached you? I don't believe she was then, but then everything got uh, pulled together, sort of sidelined as well because of the pandemic. So mm -hmm. I just, to be honest, I just thought the whole production may have folded by that point because so much time had passed and I ended up doing some other things in other productions. And then when they said, oh, we're going to do it again, it's coming. Beanie Feldstein's Fanny Bryce. I was like, that's fantastic. What a great choice that is. And then everything moved very quickly at that point, And here we are, thankfully. Right. And you had done a lot of theater, Phantom, which I read when you were a kid or young, very young. You had seen that so many times. You were like obsessed with that. And then, it was of course, like, we... yeah, it was like education. I, I, Cole Wilkinson, who was the Phantom, had such a unique voice. The story was phenomenal for those were my years between 12 and maybe 17 that I kept frequenting the show in Toronto because I remember thinking, I want to do that. That looks like fun. <laughs> well, which is interesting. How old were you before everyone recognized, like your family, school, friends, that you were gifted with this incredible voice? Well, that's very kind of you saying that, but it's something I, I didn't really share too much. In high school, my friends only knew me when I was in rock band, so... I, no. I think hopefully they enjoyed watching that, but I don't think anyone thought there's a singer. Sing. Who knows? Because it's something I never really considered either. I didn't, when I thought I want to play the Phantom or be in shows, I never thought and I want to sing those shows. I want to be those characters. I wanted to act those characters. Singing was just something you had to do to play those characters. I never thought about it as go be a singer. So when did I'm a singer hit you whether you wanted it or not to be honest i don't know if it has hit me all i know is these roles require me to sing and i enjoy doing it i enjoy you know telling the story of nikki arnstein playing that arc every night and music is just an extension of the emotion that's the way i see it i don't think i'm at all uh, an established singer or a prolific singer or even necessarily a good one i'm just i enjoy singing from the heart and these characters Sometimes words aren't enough, so they put their body, they put sound, and, you know, it's another way of have to sing it. Yeah, but you're a really interesting Nikki because we're sort of torn with Nikki. You know, is he's not a bad guy, you know. He, he really loves a beanie. He loves Fanny Bryce. But he does Absolutely. all these things, but there's something about him that touches your heart, and that's the way you've developed him. 
Well, I appreciate that. I'm glad you say that. Obviously, Nick Yarnstein in real life was a, a bit of a different cat. And, you know, yeah. it, it would be a different conversation if we were playing that story. But the Nick Yarnstein in Funny Girl that the audience sees, I, I think you're absolutely spot on with your assessment of him. You know, he was sure he probably uh, had a, a darker circle of friends or co- colleagues around him, but he was doing the best he knew with what he knew. And he certainly genuinely loved Fanny Bryce. And I think he, he found an authenticity in her and what she brought to his life that no money, no facade, none of that could buy. And I think that's, Ultimately, what he probably couldn't handle in the long run, but he was, you know, I think he was a good guy. Flawed. Yeah, well, you made you made him a good guy, and you made us all care about him. Oh, that's you know? amazing! And even when you leave the show, you want to know what happened. You know, it, more than what we were left with, like what happened to this guy whom we became attached to, oh. as we did to Fanny during those few hours in the theater. Well, that's the magic part of theater, you know, and then you with that great big voice, too, that sort of knocks it out of the box. And I bet he was not an easy character to develop. You had to really put a lot into this guy. Yeah, it was a difficult process, but it's something because Beanie was so great to work alongside every day. And then you have people like Jane Lynch in the room and obviously Michael Mayer directing you. You kind of, every day I thought, okay, today it didn't work. Let's see what tomorrow brings. And it's the first time I try not to beat myself up or uh, sprint for results. Every day I knew we had a long rehearsal process, a long technical process. So I thought, you know, use the time and just see what happens organically. Every day me and Beanie would go over the scenes and new things would happen. And it took some time and I would still find myself internally get frustrated with myself, but I kept having talks and just saying, Give yourself grace. Give yourself time. This will come. And uh, and I, I kind of want to always have that mentality, even because I think that's what keep it fresh over the year, or however long we're in the show. And uh, right. every night becomes its own unique interpretation of them. Yeah, and you know, I kept wondering because we were in the pandemic. We're still in the pandemic, but it's a little bit different now. But the auditions and everything were probably over Zoom. In the beginning, well, I yeah, luckily I didn't. Although you didn't have was, to do that, no. And I, I've heard stories of people doing that, and I just my hats off to them because Zoom for me, I can't stand it anyways because I love human contact, and also the line goes down. So I don't know how people did that, but it's amazing that we were able to do that to keep the industry going as best they could. And uh, thankfully, here we are able to do it in the room live and have an audience now. Right. And an audience that goes crazy. They, Can you believe they that? Love, yeah, I can. Cause I was there and they just, and they're talking about it at intermission and they're all excited about it. But you know, theater's back and theater of course is the heart of our town. And that's what draws people here. And we can't ever forget it. And funny girl is one of the great musicals. So we all are in love with the story and with every and with everything in it. So, and and, but your you family, yeah, but your family is uh, still in London, right? Or did they move to New York? 
No, we've they stayed in London long. because, as you know, with this industry, you never know what's around the corner. So exactly, I, as a father, I'd rather keep my my children and my wife in our family home before I will see what happens in the next sort of like calendar year or whatnot before we uh-huh. we think of uprooting our foundation. But England's England's our home. Whether I make right. America my a second home is yet to be well, seen. That's but okay, you can. Yeah, you can do both. Yeah. Did they come in for the opening? My wife did. So she was here for the last four days and sadly has returned back to England, but she loved it. She had a great time. I bet. You know, and New York was just waking up and she was here for good things during a good part, which is great. Yeah, it's good to see the city getting its identity back. You know, we just need them all the rest of the theaters filling up with shows and people and uh, get the it's spirit starting. back. No, yeah, it's starting absolutely. and a lot of shows are opening again and people are coming back to Times Square. So, and this show, this is one of my favorite shows. I love Funny Girl. It's got a great cast. And even if you saw it many, many years ago, this is different. And that's what you have mm-hmm. to remember. Every time you see a Broadway show, you're seeing something new. And absolutely. Funny Girl's at the August Wilson Congratulations to you. Enjoy thank the you. run, and I look forward to talking to you again. Take care. Uh, thank you so much, Joan. Take care. My pleasure. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC, and of course, we have lots more ahead. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. What everyone is asking now is Mother's Day gifts. And well, if you have a mama who's like me, we haven't done much in the last two and a half years or bought anything. So anything you give would be appreciated. Theater tickets would be great. Mama Likes to Laugh, Mr. Saturday Night with Billy Crystal kept us very happy. He was funny. So there's good. Funny Girl is good. There's a lot of good shows that are playing right now. Hangman, yeah, a lot of good stuff on Broadway. You can certainly do that. Dinner, people are going out. Dinner at a restaurant. Or I'll tell you, I feel like I need a real makeover. I was looking at a story in the New York Times about Martha Stewart the other day. And she's 80, her gorgeous skin, what she does to take care of it, the injections that she gets. I wouldn't mind having a little something like that. But, you know, I started thinking years ago, I found a woman at Henry Vendel's, the great department store, the New York Classic, that closed in 2019. I always pronounce her name wrong, but it's G-I-E-L-L-A. Giella.com, what she would do is custom makeup so that if you lost your lipstick or you couldn't get it anymore or the blush wasn't available, you didn't know what kind of mascara, she would deal with all that at Vendel's or wherever. She still custom blends cosmetics for the face, for the eyes, for the cheeks, the nails, and skin. They'll create your perfect shade of lipstick. 
she knows how to do that. So you'll see even if you don't want to do it online or through Zoom, you can find a salon, G-I-E-L-L-A.com. And that custom makeup is great. You can either buy an empty lipstick or a gloss or a package or a makeup lesson. I wasn't so good at that stuff, but I like all the others. And she's in a salon, S-C-K, on Thursdays and Fridays at 587 Fifth Avenue between 47th and 48th Street. So check that one out. I think that's a good gift if you don't want to go for a theater or a meal. Listen, I'd even take socks, anything, just so mom knows you're thinking of her. And meanwhile, I'm looking at the clock, and it says 3 o'clock. So that means you and I are going to go goodbye, farewell for the week. I'm Joan Hamburg. And you've been listening to WABC.